0: You're listening to the sermon audio from The Shore Church, located in North Vancouver. For more information about The Shore, upcoming events, or to donate, you can head to www.theshorechurch.ca. Alright, well this is Jake. Uh, I actually was his wife's youth pastor. Yeah. And so, really cool. And uh, they named their kid after my dad.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, we did do <laughs> that's that. Not real, that's not really
0: the reason, but anyways. Well, let me pray for Jake, and then uh, before we digress any further. All right, and then Jake's going to read the word for us. Mm. Uh, Jesus, I thank you so much for this brother. I thank you for his faithfulness, uh, even for his family uh, that are here with us today. And, and Lord, I pray that just a blessing upon him, his ministry, and for us as he preaches the word, uh, as we step aside and, and just allow you to speak for us this morning. Lord, I pray that you'll use Jake uh, to empower us uh, for your namesake and your glory, uh, that we will surrender the things of our desires of our heart uh, for your desires, Lord. And so I just pray uh, that you will impact us this morning through the words that Jake has prepared
1: for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks, Jer. Well, good morning. It is so good to be with you. Uh, we are driving here. I'm going to read the word of God in just a second. We, we are driving here, and we, we minister in East Vancouver. And so our kids were coming like through the neighborhood, seeing the trees. They're like, it is so beautiful here. Uh, because usually our scenes on Sunday morning are like raccoons fighting each other uh, and other unsightly things. And so it's really good to be here and smell the fresh air of North Vancouver this morning. Uh, I'm going to read from 1 John three eleven to 24. And by this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before Him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and He knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. And whatever we ask, we receive from Him because we keep His commandments and do what pleases Him. And this is His commandment that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another just as He has commanded us. Whoever keeps His commandments abides in God. And God in Him And by this we know that He abides in us by the Spirit whom He has given us. This is the word of God. Let's pray together again. If yeah, Father, we want to hear from you, we want to hear from you this morning as your children, who need direction, who need help. And children who need to hear your call and your voice to us through your word. So give us ears to hear, eyes to see, and hands and feet to obey all that you're speaking to us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, like you're said, I, I live, serve, work, pretty much do everything within like a two-kilometer radius Uh, Of sort of East Vancouver, the Hastings Sunrise neighborhood. That's where my life is. And the other day I was walking in the neighborhood, I'm gonna put that slide up, and I came across, uh, it was around Valentine's Day, and I came across this sort of giant cardboard candy heart. And on it was a slogan that you're you're probably familiar with. It's a fairly popular one in our day and age Love is love, right? Love is love. And on one hand, I'm quite sympathetic to this statement. My neighborhood, like yours, no doubt, is full of lots of brokenness, uh, homelessness, addiction, domestic violence. This is my nine-to-five. I'm sure your neighborhoods have their own things as well. People just want a place to belong, a place to feel love. They want the gates thrown open. Love is love, so we say. I can sympathize. Yet despite our claim to to love without prejudice, to just throw open our arms wide and say love is love, we all fail, don't we? In fact, we all draw lines, actually, when it comes down to it, you know, at the nitty-gritty, as to who is and who is not actually worthy of our love. So I have four sons, and my house is chaos, and I was dropping off our third son the other day at preschool, and there's this woman there who's the nicest lady you've ever met. She genuinely is. She'll greet you. She'll say hi to you. Like, like she'll, she'll bring you groceries, I'm sure, if you asked her to. She, she's that kind of lovely woman. But, but this particular Friday morning, I overheard her speaking on the phone to somebody else saying, those people are dead to me. Those people are dead to me. I don't want any more relationship beyond this with those people. Now, I don't know what the context was of that phone call or who she was talking to, but I think the point remains. When it comes down to it, even the most noble of us, the most charitable of us draw lines as to just who and who is not worthy of our love. And so culturally, this puts us in a bit of a pickle. See, on one hand, we want love, to be indiscriminate and unrelated to actions or truth. We say, right, love is love. And yet, we carefully select, uh, on the basis of people's actions and beliefs, who we love. We, either with our words or our lives, say to certain people, you're dead to me. We need a a cultural reset on love, don't we? A cultural reset. And thankfully, as you've seen, the Apostle John loves talking about love, doesn't he? He loves talking about love. You've seen so far in your time in 1 John that he said, that Love, true love, produces in us an obedience to God's word. That's 1 John two fifteen or 2.5. Love, true love, he says, not only produces in us an obedience to God's word, but also an affection for God and a distaste for the things of this world. That's 1 John 2.15. And love, true love, you've seen, is not seen in God's begrudging forgiveness of our sins, no, but in his joyful welcome and embrace of us as his children. That's 1 John 3.1. John loves talking about love. And now in our text today that I read for us, John gets to the heart of the love that he's been dancing around, considering. And his reset on love is gonna come in three parts very conveniently for my sermon this morning. First, the origins of love, second, the outworkings of love, and then third, the the offer of love to us this morning. First, the origins of love. Look at your Bibles, verses eleven to twelve. And I want us to note, and John did this on purpose, he begins our text this morning by contrasting two ways to live, two ways to be in this world. Look at verse 11. He says this He says, For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. In other words, your church was planted on this message to love one another. What a good message to plant a church on, right? You should love one another. Your community is founded on on this love. And he goes on to say, We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Well, John says, because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Now, if you're not familiar with it, and that's okay if you're not, the story of Cain and Abel is found in Genesis 4 in our Bibles. Cain and Abel are the first brothers. Are also the first to worship God, to bring formal sacrifice to Him, to bring an offering to Him. And so Genesis 4, in this moment of worship, tells us that Cain brought an offering of the fruit of the ground, while Abel brought, listen, the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions. Now, to, to you and to me, not well-versed in the, the hierarchy of ancient Near Eastern uh, offerings, uh, we don't really see what the difference is, but, but we can think of it like this. Abel's offering was better. It was better. Where Cain gives a portion of his harvest, Abel gives the firstborn of his flock, and, and the narrator includes the tastiest bits as well, the, the fat portions. And so one Bible teacher, Ray Orland, he says this. He says, we can think of it like this. Cain threw a tip on the table, but Abel gave his best. Cain gave out of his income, but Abel gave out of his capital. Cain made a gesture of thanks, but Abel risked his future growth potential by giving God some of his breeding stock. He says the difference between these two men was tokenism, and then there's our word, versus love and God took it seriously. So think about this. Cain's relationship to God is not one of love, and what is the result? When he sees the love of Abel, the worship of Abel, it is, as Ortland will continue to say, it acts as a living reproach, a living rebuke. Well, what does that mean? We can think of it like this. Maybe you, and I don't know you, so this is safe for me to say, because I'm not prying into your life, but maybe you were the bad kid in your family growing up. Bad kid in my family growing up. And you're like, I don't believe that. Believe me, bad kid in my family growing up. Of four kids, I was the worst. My parents will confirm it. There was a season in life when I was this bad kid, and my older siblings loved Jesus, worshiped Jesus, and I did not. And because they loved Jesus, I hated them. I hated I despised them. I did not hate them because they were mean. They were and they are amazing people. I did not hate them because they were overly judgmental. Uh, They lovingly shared the gospel with me. No, I hated them because their love for God was an indictment of my hatred for him, of my distaste for him. In my siblings, I saw what I was not, as Cain must have, as Cain did. And so as John loves to do in this letter, he gives us two options, right? John is so binary. John's not a spectrum guy. John's binary. He gives us two options. The first way we can live is in the path of Cain, Cain who did not love the Lord and it showed in his offering. Now again, let's pause. We should note that at this point at least, Cain is not overtly rebellious, right? He did not scorn God. He was just coldly indifferent to the Lord. He was, you could say, very religiously observant, but his heart was unmoved, unfazed, not in it. And because Cain did not love the Lord, he hated Abel. Abel, whose sacrifice of love condemned Cain's lovelessness. But John goes deeper as he always does, and he gets at the root as to, why, as to why Cain hated Abel. He says this He says, No murderer, verse 15, look at that. He says, No murderer has eternal life abiding in him. He says, He ultimately, the way of Cain is the fruit of having no eternal life at his root. Remember, for John, eternal life is not just a future reality. It's a present experience now reality. We we now, by the Spirit, have have this deposit of eternal life now. We can experience eternal life now. It's not just a, a far away thing, it's also a now thing. And John says, no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. In other words, Cain and all who feel a cold indifference to God have no burning zeal, no burning love for the Lord because there's been no fire lit within them. No fire in them. And then John switches. And he does a contrast for us. And he says, there is another way made possible by another man. A man who makes Abel's sacrifice of love look small in comparison. Did you see that in 1 John 3.16? He says this. Look at it with me. He says, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. I I hope you see it, but, but John, of course, is talking about Jesus. He's talking about Jesus. He's left Abel altogether. He's now talking about Jesus. Jesus who lays down his life for us. And he's saying, in Jesus, we come to know the heart of love. And so if we were to strip it all back if we were to take love and look behind the butterflies and the romantic dinners and the grand gestures, at the heart of love, John is saying, is self-sacrifice, substitutionary self-sacrifice, a person dying in the place of another. And Hollywood knows this. Right? All the best movies have some sort of substitutionary self-sacrifice. The New York Times bestsellers know this. All the best books have some sort of substitutionary self-sacrifice. We could list dozens. There is no grander gesture than dying in someone's place. But the scandal of the gospel, the wonder of our message, the thing which unifies you and the church globally this morning is this, is that Jesus shows us love for his enemies, is that Jesus shows his love not just for the Abel's, but the Cain's. For those indifferent to him, even opposed to him. Paul puts it so beautifully in Romans 5. He says, For while we were still weak, at the right time Christ died for the ungodly. And then he he does some real talk. He says, real talk here, For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, right? Though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us, this foreign, unexplained, unexpected love in that while we were still sinners, opposed to him, enemies of him, against him, not for him. What what does Paul say? Christ died for us. Christ died for us. Jesus laid down his life that we may live. And now John says that we may also lay down our lives for others. Don't miss the order of what John is saying in our text this morning. It's very important. Jesus first, in his death on the cross in our place, not only shows us love, but empowers us to love. Jesus first loves, and then we love. We love, right, because he has first loved us. We love out of a place of being loved. Our being, very importantly, precedes our doing, our acting. We don't do in order to be a certain way. We are first made as lovely creatures, and then from there, we love others. It's very important in the Christian life we don't get that backwards. Our love, once limited now or absent altogether, is now being fed by the eternal spring of God's love. So let me illustrate. If you were to visit where I serve on Sunday morning, you would meet a man named Steve. You would meet him because he would greet you. And he'd make sure that you were greeted by him. He'd be wearing old Toronto Maple Leaf skier, as pleases the Lord, uh, and he would say hi to you. I'm from Toronto, if you don't know don't hate me. Steve, by his own admission, about a year and a half ago, uh, was a miserable person. Miserable. Miserable person. Steve was an ex-military pilot. He had spent his life chasing girls and money all over the world. Uh, He was on his second marriage. He was estranged from his brother, and his life was without purpose. And, And then... In the middle of an October night in 2021, the Lord woke Steve up, convicted Steve of his sin, Steve fell on his knees, repented of his sins, and put his faith in Jesus, like that. It was miraculous. And, and suddenly what we began to see as Steve joined our church and as we baptized him is this once miserable, miserable man that now became the most loving person in the room, Now, if at the church I serve at, you have something that you need, don't let Steve find out about it because he'll buy it for you. He'll get it for you. If you've got to move, don't let Steve find out. He'll move you. Right? I think our kids are half clothed with clothes that Steve has dropped off at our house. See, this is what John's talking about. His zealous and extravagant love for the church, for the people of God, is this external sign of an inward change. Now, one Bible teacher puts it like this, very succinctly. Tibidi he says it like this: Our love for one another is the flower and fruit that indicates eternal life is at the root. So, so what is that flower? What does that fruit look like? What are the particular contours and shape and color of this flower and this fruit? This is point two, the outworking of love. How does the love of Christ for us change how we live today? Change how the church interacts with one another today? I think John gives us three outworkings when the origin of love is Jesus. And the first one is abundantly clear. Look at verses 17 to 18 with me. John says this. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, listen to what John says, how does God's love abide in him? Little children. Let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. You see how John's so good at that. He's so pastoral, little children. And now here's a hard word. Let us not love in what? Word or talk, but indeed and in truth. I don't know if you're in Deuteronomy yet in your Bible reading plan. I'm, I'm not there. I'm still stuck in Leviticus. But if you are in Deuteronomy, uh, perhaps what John is saying to you this morning might sound a bit familiar. I think John is intentionally echoing what Moses commanded in places like Deuteronomy 15. I'll read that for you. If among you, this is what Moses says to the Israelites, one of your brothers should become poor... In any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not, what? Harden your heart, close your heart, or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. So the scriptures are super clear. That they're not opaque, and they're not fuzzy. Uh, material generosity is to be practiced amongst God's people, amongst the church. And so when we come to the book of Acts, for example, and we see the birth of the church, Luke records in Acts 2, "...and all who believed were together and had all things in common, and they were selling all their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need." And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. Notice in Acts, Deuteronomy, John, generosity is a matter of the heart. Moses, Luke, and John are all asking one question. Do you have a generous heart? Do you have a generous heart? And not just a generous heart generally, But specifically, a generous heart towards the people of God. The people of God. And if the answer is yes, a generous heart will not manifest itself in empty words, but with material goods. Generous hearts lead to material generosity within the church. And so let me say something that that is perfect for a guest guest preacher preacher to say. Ready? Ready? Your church, in your sacrificial giving, in your material giving of your finances. Right? Don't overlook the church. Don't overlook God's people. Should you be generous to all people? Yes. To your Buddhist neighbor? Yes. To your atheist coworker? Yes. But don't overlook the church. If your money and your resources are primarily allocated to those outside the body, you've missed a thread that runs all the way through Scripture. And that is that love is to be shown in sacrificial, material, generosity within God's people, within the church. This is a natural outworking of love rooted in the work of Jesus. But John continues, he says in verse 19 to 21, look at this with me. He says by this we shall know that we are of the truth and reassure our heart before him. For whenever our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart, and he knows everything. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. John here, he he doubles down. He's going all in on his view of love. He's doubling down. And as if he's anticipating romanticism, right? This period of time where the emphasis was on the feelings of love, right? Love is this felt thing, this experienced reality. As if he's anticipating romanticism, he essentially says, look, generously show your love for the church even when you don't feel like it. Even when your emotions are telling you something different. Look at verse 19. I just want us to see this. He says, By this, we shall all know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. The by this, you see that? The by this, of course, is in reference to the generosity to the church. It is by and through this generosity, John says, that we have confidence that we are of this truth. But, and we all know this, there is another thought that, that comes into our heads just as we're about to write that check or give away that vehicle or, or send that text to offer babysitting. And the thought sounds something like this. Maybe you can relate. Is this really necessary? Like, is it really, really, truly necessary? I could just text them and say that I'm praying for them, th- thinking of you, Right? right? Praying for you, thinking of you, right? Or maybe my generosity would embarrass them. I wouldn't want to embarrass them. I wouldn't want to do that. I wouldn't want them to feel like a charity case. And, and really, at the end of the day, it's best I don't give, right? Things are a bit tight on our end. Anyways, I heard there's a recession coming up. D- do you know that thought? Have you experienced that thought? I, I have. We have. One Bible commentator, he's writing on this. He explains what's going on in our passage. I think this is helpful. He says this, the demand for sacrificial charity has been made towards a poor man, one of your brethren. Then he says, but a base thought arises in the heart of a Christian which condemns the sacrifice demanded as unnecessary and suggests that it can be avoided And that love can be maintained apart from a definite surrender of life or goods. That love can be maintained apart from a definite surrender of life or goods. And John says, in these moments, at this time... When we think these thoughts, we need to reassure, or probably more accurately, persuade our hearts that the command really, truly, genuinely is for sacrificial generosity. It genuinely is. And it really comes from the God who knows and sees everything. And the way to confidence, consisting with what John has been saying all along, is actually loving your brother and sister in this way. When it comes to giving, I don't think I can do better uh, than what C.S. Lewis wrote in his book, Mere Christianity. He said this. What does this mean? Lewis wrote, I do not believe one can settle how much we ought to give. In other words, I'm going to give you a number, I'm going to give you a number. I am afraid the only safe rule is to give more than we can spare. In other words, if our expenditure on comforts, luxuries, amusements, etc., is up to the standard common among those with the same income as our own, we are probably giving away too little. He continues If our charities do not at all pinch or hamper us, I should say they are too small. And then he says, There ought to be things we should like to do and cannot do because our charitable expenditure excludes them. Shore Church, Church of Jesus, you have before you this morning, we have before us this morning a clear command of Scripture. And our job, with the help of the Holy Spirit, is to hold on to this command for sacrificial, material generosity while we wrestle our hearts into submission. Again, John's not done. Last outworking, verse 22. John says this And whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do what pleases him. There, there's more good news in our text this morning. It's this God loves to bless a life of love marked by sacrificial generosity. And before you, you know, come at me with pitchforks and torches for being a prosperity guy, John's going to qualify this later in first John 5. He'll say this, this is the confidence that we have toward him. That if we ask anything, listen, according to his will, right? That's the qualifier John wants to add in there. He hears us. And so here's the takeaway for us, ready? The life of love rooted in the work of Christ expressed in sacrificial and radical generosity is a life the Father loves to provide for. He loves to provide for that kind of life. He loves to meet you in your time of need. He loves to do it. If our aim is love, this love, John promises our Father will hear us and we will receive according to his will. This, this, this past Sunday, maybe it was two Sundays ago, I forget. But, but during our time of response where I serve, I, I went off script for a bit. And that's always dangerous when the pastor goes off script, right? It's just dangerous. But I went off script. And during the time of response, I challenged our church. I said, church, try to out-bless God this year. Try to out-give God this year. Try to out-honor Him this year. And see what happens. And sure, church, let me say the same thing to you. See what happens when this year, when in 2023, you push the limits of your love, what you thought were the limits of your love. And the first thing you'll find is that with Christ dwelling in you, you have a deeper well of love than you previously imagined, right? We're drawing from His love. We have a deeper well than we could have previously have imagined or conceived. And second, you will find that our Father never hangs us out to dry. Now he'll act in his time and in his way, but he will provide. Some of you know the story of, of George Mueller. Isn't that story? George Mueller. Uh, he built and operated uh, orphanages in Bristol, England in the 19th century. He cared for over 10,000 orphans in his lifetime. Amazing man of God. And throughout his ministry, Mueller never asked for money. He never asked for money. Instead, he believed that, that God would simply provide for all his needs and, and the needs of the orphans if they simply prayed. If they simply prayed. And so one famous story tells of Mueller sitting down with the kids for breakfast, and, and they give thanks for the meal, but, but there's no food in front of them. The, the table is barren, That the table is empty, there's nothing there. And sure enough, moments later, as they finish praying, a baker knocks on the door with enough bread for everyone. Next thing you know, a few minutes later, a milk cart has broken down right in front of the orphanage, and they need to offload plenty of fresh milk. Sure, church, the point is this. The outworkings of our love are intended to reflect the radical origins of our love. I just think of Jesus' words: "Those who have been forgiven much, right, love much." Our last point is an offer. Origins, workings. Now the offer. We need not just in the world. Let's have an in-house conversation for a bit. We we need a reset on love in the church. And far from being a bad thing, I think we should embrace this as an age of opportunity for us. First, what a time for us as a church. What a a moment to exist in and to live in and to be in. To exist as a community of love in a world so confused about love. Desperately looking for love to demonstrate to one another real and tangible sacrificial generosity as a sign of what we have received in Jesus like like what a moment for us as a church what a time in a world of frauds the church can proclaim we've got the real thing second what an opportunity what an offer for you for those of you who've come this morning who, who don't know Jesus And if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, listen, Jesus does not sweep the truth of who we are under the rug. Jesus sees us and he sees our sin in all its fullness and says, it's so bad I need to die for it. I need to die for you. But in the very same breath, neither does Jesus allow our status as sinners to keep us from him. He dies for us to bring us to himself, to save us, to reconcile us to him. Jesus upholds in his ministry and in his life and in his death on the cross both the truth and the beauty of love. I love what author Tim Keller writes in his book on marriage. He says this. He says, love without truth, listen, is sentimentality. Right? It supports and affirms us, but keeps us in denial about our flaws. He says, truth without love is harshness. It gives us information, but in such a way that we cannot really hear it. God's saving love in Christ, however, is marked by both radical truthfulness about who we are, and yet, listen, also radical unconditional unconditional commitment to us. Radical truthfulness about who we are, and radical unconditional commitment to us. That's the gospel. The merciful commitment strengthens us to see the truth about ourselves and repent. The conviction and repentance moves us to cling to and rest in God's mercy and grace. Not only does Jesus move us to cling to and rest in God's mercy and grace, he roots us in himself. We abide in him, as John loves to say. And in Christ, we find the eternal life that becomes a root producing the fruit and flower of our love one another. And the question we're left with is very simple this morning. Do you want this? Do we want this as a church? Do we want to be shaped and changed and challenged by this love? Or do we just want cold doctrine and nice, comfortable Sunday mornings? Maybe you're asking, well, where do I begin? And the answer, always, in John's gospel, as it is here in this letter, is simply by receiving. John writes this, and this is how he ends our passage. He says, and this is his commandment, that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as he has commanded us. That we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. Everything begins, whether at the beginning or in the middle or near the end of your Christian walk, everything begins with turning to Jesus, asking for grace, throwing yourself once more upon his mercy and love for you. And he will meet you. That's his guarantee. God extends to those in the lineage lineage and likeness of Cain an offer. An offer. Turn from your hatred. Cast off your smug indifference and believe in my son. Let's pray together. So Jesus, we thank you that you, by your spirit, are present among us. And as your servant Isaiah says, your word has gone out. Would, would your word produce uh, fruit in our life? And as was prayed this morning during the pre, uh, pre-gathering prayer, w- would we not just be hearers of the word, but doers of the word as well? So Lord, forgive us and forgive me for what I have not obeyed your word. Help us by your spirit to be a church across the lower mainland of radical love that reflects the, its radical origin. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll be